everyone. Welcome to Second Rail. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Rogers. Elizabeth is an old friend, and she's been working in and around domestically and internationally the ed tech scene. Since by, from what I can tell, Elizabeth, pretty much any measure since really the start of ed tech, like since it began, period. But unlike many of the, I've talked on with, uh, I've talked on this podcast with a lot of uh, ed tech founders, and I've talked with a lot of kind of end users of ed tech. But the thing that I haven't really done, and the the area that I think Elizabeth brings forth that really no one else has, I haven't talked to anyone else about, and I think is unique, is the kind of merging of those two. I I think that founders are awesome at promoting their product or service, but they sometimes miss how actual people on the ground are are using their their product. And I think that teachers, professors, managers, uh, and people who are using ed tech are, are kind of very real and they get how they want to use a certain product or service, but they often miss the kind of the, the complexity of, of what went into getting that to them in the first place and how following what is offered by the product or service is, is kind of advantageous to them. So, so I, I think that Elizabeth's made a profession out of blending and bridging these realities of both the industry of learning and the, and the realities of learning. And I've been wanting to have her to have her on the podcast for a long time. So I'm thrilled to have her here. So let's dive right into it. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome to Second Rail. Thanks. And I'm honestly glad we didn't do it sooner, sooner because I think um, March 2020 is a particularly interesting time to be talking about things in a different way than even two or three or four weeks ago, we would have been talking. Well, about for sure. And we're going to get, and we're going to get into that for sure. So let, so let me start by saying, I hope you'll excuse my summary of your, your work. How would you describe your background in your field? Um, I got involved in online education, not, I'm going to say not from the beginning, but about 2012 is when I started working in this. And um, I've worked in for two different companies that are called online program management companies, OPMs, and they worked um, specifically with colleges and universities to help them bring their degree programs online. And um, we were, I worked for two different companies there, third party companies who partnered with universities to help look at how they were enrolling students, how they were marketing to students, how they are delivering education to students and really looking at the whole life cycle right from when somebody first requested information about their school or learned about their school and their program to um, the day that they enroll all the way through when they take their classes to the day that they graduate. Um, And we helped universities look at that from both an operational point of view Um, How many steps did it take to get somebody enrolled? How long did it take? Because they're suddenly finding themselves competing with um, for-profit universities, which have um, a whole lot of money that they spend in marketing and advertising and are very quick to get people enrolled because we live in an Amazon economy right now. Mm-hmm. You think, oh gosh, a decision to go back to school, especially to get a full degree is one that you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. That's actually not the case. People do a bit of shopping online, but once they've made that decision to go back to school, they generally want to get enrolled and they want to start very quickly. And so traditional colleges and universities, not set up to do that. Usually a couple of months, a paper file folder gets passed from this office to this office to this office, and then you get a letter delivered to you in the mail that you, um, that you got into school. That doesn't work anymore. The modern learner is not taking that long. And so we helped universities 
compete in this new era. All right. Well, I want to get into, I want to, we're going to get into all that. And in particular, we're going to get into um, how, uh, how people are learning and how, how that, that, that big change is happening in terms of how people are accessing what they need to move forward in their careers and their lives. But, but before we do that, let's start with what's top of mind for all of us. Um, we're at home. <laughs> COVID-19 and coronavirus are, are, have, changed, have already changed life in the U.S. and worldwide for all of us. And since most of us are staying at home, online, everything is exploding because right. that's where we're living. Uh, people are spending eight, nine hours a day in front of, their, in front of, in front of screens, uh, whereas maybe they were spending five or six before, uh, and now they're doing it from home as opposed to at the office. There's, and, and we all know that the, uh, for those of us who have, have, have looked at EdTech at all, we know that some of the, the big you know, uh, benefits are, are increased accountability for individual work, more opportunity for reflection and revision and personalization, um, all the other benefits that we've been hearing about EdTech for so long. And, people, and, and really, the technology world's been pushing for years. But I feel like whatever else this pandemic brings, and uh, there's a lot of sadness that it's bringing, but I think that if there is a silver lining, um, I think that one of the big silver linings is going to be the, the increased uh, freedom that people are going to have in using, in, in using online services for, for all kinds of education. Um, so from your experience, um, you know, with, with end users, with, with kind of bridging this gap between, between the industry and, and, and learning, what, what, what are you seeing now, um, you know, in the wake of the, of the virus and us being home in the last two weeks? Pretty much everything. <laughs> um, I think one of the challenges that I faced um, when I was working with universities is a lot of folks said, I don't really think people learn best this way. There was reluctance to go online. A lot of faculty, um, some students felt like, oh, I'm just not going to learn best that way. A lot of reluctance. And now, quite literally, most everybody is doing a lot of things online, but a lot of learning online. Kids of all ages, K through 12, which wasn't necessarily the case before, they're learning online, and then definitely university students and then adult learners. You have teachers and parents now interacting with online learning in a different way, and parents who didn't think about this at all before, uh, K through 12 teachers who weren't used to doing this. Um, you have adults who are trapped in their apartments and wanting to stay busy. They're wanting to take classes online potentially for the first time. And then you have independent professionals, even folks that you wouldn't associate with online learning, like music teachers, yoga teachers, fitness instructors, trying to keep their heads above water and offering classes online. So you, you quite literally have a huge segment of the population that is now looking at this and wondering how to make the best experience possible in a way that they just weren't before. So I think this is really going to take a lot of that reluctance away. And when online education saw its first real big uptick was after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Mm -hmm. so a lot of the universities in the Gulf were so you know, devastated by the hurricane, they yeah. wanted to keep teaching their classes. And so one of the companies that I worked with, actually both of them, um, really saw a big uptick. Suddenly, universities said, we have to figure out how to keep teaching our students. Um, 
when we can't have them back on campus. Well, talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about how that, how that, that change happened. Like, like what was the process or what did you see as the process of kind of what was driving that after obviously the, the, the Katrina itself did it, but then what was, what were the steps? How did, how did, how did it look from your perspective? Um, how does a university come forward? Where does it begin and how does it really take off? Um, I think necessity is the mother of invention. Really, it came, it comes out after Katrina and even for most other universities out of a financial necessity. So they either, Talk about that. yeah, their state funding for public universities is down and also enrollment from traditional undergrads is generally down. So universities, when they're looking at their you know, balance sheet are trying to figure out how to keep the lights on. And uh, mm -hmm. generally they, a lot of that revenue came from traditional undergrad students and the cost of college is rising. So for a myriad of reasons, there are just not as many traditional undergrads going to school. Where do they make up that revenue? Um, offering online programs is a way that some traditional undergrads can still live and work at home, work part-time and take part-time online classes so they can still work towards the degree, mm -hmm. but they can save money by living at home and they can continue to have a job. And so that's a way that they can afford classes. Um, but really, I, I think from a university's perspective, it comes out of the administration mostly looking at ways to keep the lights on and mm -hmm. to make up for those traditional students that they're not seeing on campus anymore. Well, well, so so let's talk about that a little bit because you started with resistance and the and the resistance early, and it's obvious now that the the lack of resistance is going to come out of like you say necessity. People can't leave the house; they're gonna so they're gonna they're gonna start learning how to use technologies that they perhaps didn't know how to use. I mean, I, I've worked with teachers who literally are like, "How do I check email?" I mean, it's right. I mean, it's they're, they're, that's out there. Um, and I and and part of the resistance it, it hasn't been really benign. Part of the resistance has been very intentional. It's about people keeping jobs. Certainly, unions and union contracts have been a part of that. Um, I've worked with a lot of them and seen specific language. It just says like you can't outsource this stuff. You can't have this done outside of working hours or outside of the school. Or and and those things are those interests aren't probably going away and they'll probably come back and later on. So I guess what I'm wondering is how do you see what's happening now? People being home and just the, because the demand's always been there. I mean, people want a more convenient way to get schooling and people who are busy and have children and lives and works want to get the degree the most efficient way they can. They want to learn the stuff. They want to develop the skills, but th those haven't gone away. That demand has always been the same. What's, what's different. It seems to me is that the, you, the, the, forces, whatever they were, and I, I'm, I'm mentioning union contracts, but it's all kinds of things, right? There are managers who don't know how to manage people who aren't working, who, who aren't working in front of them. Uh, there, there are lots of forces uh, for, for, you know, people who just are unable, have been unable to, or unwilling, more than unable to, to, to make the change. How is that going to be different now? What do you, how, what do you kind of forecast? What do you see happening when this is over that will allow this shift to be more permanent? Um, I think it will help dispel a lot of misconceptions about online teaching. So I've worked with um, unions that were very resistant initially at um, the higher ed, in higher ed, and 
the misconception is that this is going to take jobs away from us. And so we're going to need less faculty. We'll need less teachers. This is going to be less jobs. And it actually, once people get into it, is quite the opposite. It takes a lot of work to take a traditional class where you just stood up maybe and lectured for three hours a couple of times a week. I mean, that's, that's a lot of planning, but if that's what you've been doing, to translate that into an engaging online experience takes some work. You can't just video record yourself. You could just record yourself giving a three-hour lecture. Not a lot of people are going to sit through a three-hour lecture. I think the... Uh, the average attention span is something like six minutes. Mm -hmm. And so you can have videos, you should have videos. That's a way to engage folks, but a three hour lecture isn't gonna cut it. And so you have to be really creative. You have to think about engaging instructional design. And I think this, this moment in history is going to, um, people are gonna realize that in a different way. Either they're the ones delivering content and they realize they're losing their students, no one's gonna watch them for that long, or they're absorbing that content and they realize that, gosh, I don't wanna just watch three hour lecture or read a thousand pages of finance text. I need this in a different way. I need some kind of combination of all of these things. So, I think it is really going to decel the, the misconception of it not requiring effort. It does require effort and people still do want some personal contact usually. We're seeing, and now I work for a software company and so we deliver education technology and we make the software to do that. And we are accelerating the launch of our live class mm, feature. Of course. And so that's not something that, that we have at this point, but we're accelerating the development work on that so that we can get that out as soon as possible because people are wanting additional ways to engage their learners. So it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of thought. And, um, but it does enable you to engage with your learners sometimes in a more um, personal way than you're even doing in class. If you think about a university lecture, and we've all probably sat in classes, there's 300 people in this art history class. You can sit in the back of the class and sit on your hands, not engage in the discussion, not participate, whatever, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't even show up a couple of days yeah. and no one notices. That is not the case in the online environment. And so what I've seen is that once somebody takes an online class with a, with a live instructor, they realize, gosh, I can't sit on my hands. I have to participate in every single one of these discussions because mm -hmm. it's, it's graded. Somebody's reading it and mm -hmm. my fellow classmates are responding to me. I have to do all of these assignments. I have to participate. So that is requiring more attention, more time, and more work on the students' part sometimes. They really do have to engage. And it's allowing no maybe the quieter students who wouldn't be first to raise their hand to jump into a debate in class to get involved. Mm -hmm. It's different. Um, it's also requiring that the instructors, that your faculty and your teachers are potentially engaging with all of the students in a classroom when before they would have just spent most of their time engaging with that handful who always have something to say in class. Um, those folks it makes can you still sound, talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes, you, it makes me think as you're talking, it sounds like these, the, the benefits that come from a lot of what's happening with online have always been there. The, the challenges of engagement, of co compelling, compelling or course design, of, of, of actually doing stuff that will, that will get kids to, students, adults too, to learn and to grow have always 
been there. It's just perhaps been ignored or it's been downplayed or it's been not a right. reality to, it's not been able to, to, to be managed in a, in a different way. So I, I see right. that the, the, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you listen to, uh, Sam Harris, there's a podcast he does. I heard last week, <laughs> he just did a podcast with Matt Mullenweg, the founder of WordPress and, you know, and, and a big kind of advocate of, of improving organizational opera, uh, kind of inter, interpersonal relations at, at work. And he talks about, Mulligan talks about the levels that an organization can go through of getting better at, at really distributed work, where people are not in the office and working from home. And he talks about the basic level being, you know, basically organizations that do exactly, do stuff from home or expect people to workers and students at home to do exactly what they would do if they were in the office. And how the higher you move in these levels, the more sophisticated you get as an organization, the more you move away from that entirely and move entirely to a results-based focus instead of a time-based focus. And I can, and I guess what I'm wondering is, is what have you seen about what's been successful or what works in, in, in an in a, in a learning environment like that. I mean, Mullenweg talks a lot about organizations getting better at, you know, not expecting people to just be sitting at their desk and, and you know, and, and, and that counts for work. And certainly that's what happened in schools too. I mean, in universities, right? These students were in the room and they were at the lecture and there might've been attendance in a K through 12 school. In fact, that's how most schools are funded is through attendance. Uh, it still is true. Most schools are funded through attendance. Uh, and, as an organization improves, Mullenweg says, there are entirely different ways of organizing work. And, and work can look entirely different where really the workers can be liberated. And if you can get your work done in an hour, good for you. You got your work done in an hour as opposed to having to sit in a chair for eight hours. How have you seen or what have you seen work or how, how have you seen that same kind of levels of improvement or how an organization can grow in an education organization? Yes, there's a, a lot to talk about there, but I think uh, online education really started um, learning management systems, LMSs, was where things kind of started, and it was more of a companion to your in-class experience. So maybe you were sitting in class, but then you were turning your um, homework assignments in or your grades were given to you in a learning management system. Um, but that wasn't really designed with the learner in mind and how does somebody learn when do they want to learn and what's their style and how do you make it engaging for them? And actually that was what is the advent of the software company that I'm at now was designed with the learner engaged. And we work, now I'm in a different realm of education, but we work with mostly societies and um, folks that do high stakes testing. And they are moving from a lot of things from print to digital. And so they're taking textbooks, dry textbooks, and just getting them to digital. And now really, they've already started thinking about now what's the next step and how to advance and make that really engaging for the learner. This is accelerating that process. But what our platform does is in a way it kind of gamifies it. We as humans like to accomplish things. We like to check things. And so we break down this you know, massive amount of reading into smaller digestible chunks. And then we assign, we think it'll take about this much time to get through things. And so we'll come up with a study plan um, based on knowledge points. And so knowledge points are loosely 
associated with time, but mm -hmm. it's something that you can accomplish. And so you can see how far you're getting and you know your test date is so many months out, then this is what you have to do to, in order to progress through it. So it's really figuring out how do we engage the learner? How do we pull them through this content so that they don't get stuck, they don't stop and um, show their progress? How you know, we have algorithms that help if you got this question wrong, you're going to see it more. It's going to come up more frequently on your flashcards. You're going to mm -hmm. still get that content until you've mastered it. Um, and yeah, there's just really great things that we can do with the data that you get in an online setting that you aren't able to capture in that in-person setting. And that's where the advancements in learning and the enhancements to the curriculum are really starting to come from. So we know that if you spend this much time, you know, studying in this online learning platform to begin with, your chances of doing or the improvement from your diagnostic when you came in to the, mm -hmm. your results on the final exam improved by X percent. Mm -hmm. But now we're looking at levels deeper than that. So is it really uh, practice questions that help you improve your performance? Is it the amount of time you spent reading? Is it um, if, you, if you take a week off between mm -hmm. your studying and then when you go back in to take the test, does that help, does that hurt? Right. Do, so those are things that we can look at really with machine learning and and that data that is available to us in a way that is just simply not in a classroom setting. So that's yeah. where things are going. And that's what's the what's the kind of data? What kind of data? So give us some examples of those data points. I mean, I've actually in my little pie in the sky science fiction universe of what's possible in an AI world where where this is really done at the level where it's like I don't know, you know, it's 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 all taken into consideration. Things like what time of day you open the app, what time of day you you know whether what you've been eating what's your uh what what what's yeah. your uh whether you've exercised today i mean i know these are completely peripheral but they're not right we all know that to have a good uh, to have a good university experience or a good learning experience those that it's all related and i guess i'm just wondering like you know how far have we gotten and where are what, what would you say is like next on in what in in both in reality as opposed to just you know my little science fiction world well, that is exciting to think about. That makes me think I just downloaded some new sleep app that's available for free for a couple of months where it tells me, it sends me reminders, like you're about to hit your morning peak in energy. So tackle your hard projects now. And then it says your, more, your afternoon dip is approaching. So you might not want to get into, you know, start reading contracts now or something. Um, wow, that's cool. So if that were layered into our learning app, and then I could get reminded to study at those peak times. Um, that would be really cool. Um, we're not to the point where we're integrating, maybe there are some platforms out there, but I don't know. Well, I got to think there's a lot more low hanging fruit right now. There's a yeah. lot of low hanging fruit, like obvious things people can do, right? That's got to be happening. And maybe those are reality. That's what we're looking at now. And I'm partnering with one of um, our clients right now who's really digging into the data because in our learning platform, we capture every single click. So we know when you log in, what you're spending time on, how many questions you got right, how many questions you got wrong. Another thing that, that we do that's really interesting is we, on a practice exam, we have you answer the question and then um, gauge your confidence. Do you think, did you answer this with high, medium, or low confidence? Mm -hmm. 
And then that factors into a whole bunch of interesting things. One, at the end of the exam, it will tell you, you marked these questions as high confidence, but you got them wrong. You need to spend some time there. Interesting. Because you thought you knew this and you did not. Interesting. And then, um, so there's all kinds of, that helps you be more efficient with your study time. Yeah. Where do I need to go back and study before I really take this exam? Um, and then we also have algorithms that factor that in and they factor in how many questions you're getting right and, and wrong in a certain course with what other people are getting right and wrong. And so we give you a rating and we give the questions a rating so that you know how you're doing in relation to other folks in the course and where you need to spend more time. And especially mm -hmm. if you're graded on a curve, that's important. And let, the, the, let me ask you about this. Uh, let, me, let me take you in a slightly different direction because what's coming up for me as you're talking is I'm thinking a little bit about the organization of a typical, to the extent there is a typical ed tech firm. I guess I'm wondering how does the typical ed tech firm balance uh, supporting the existing software and service that's out there versus developing, I guess it's just R&D, but it's also kind of maybe developing new algorithms, kind of collecting data and analyzing data at an aggregate level and doing radically new things. How, how does a typical ed tech firm organize itself in terms of how much emphasis, maybe how many bodies, if you have 100 bodies, you know, or what percentage of bodies are spent on the different functions in an ed tech firm? And pretend like you're talking to this to somebody who, you know, to, your, to an average teacher or an average professor who knows nothing about how, how ed tech is organized. What would you say is kind of overview, how do they organize, how, how does an ed tech firm organize itself? Um, I know this is an unfulfilling answer, but it depends. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm a lawyer. It's the first last, that's the first answer they teach you in law school. The answer is always it depends. depends. So that's fine. Yeah. There are different companies that focus on different things. And so one company might not, might just be focused on one vertical. Um, and they might just be a software development company. There are other people who are producing content. Um, and they're producing content in a certain area that they might license to schools or organizations. And there are people that are just doing instructional design. So, uh, yeah, it really depends on, on how, what part of the market that company is looking to focus on mm -hmm. to um, online program management companies that I worked with before, as I referenced, they really focus on sales and marketing. And so through economies of scale, they can market for a lot of these universities and help them streamline their operational processes. That is a big focus of those companies. What I, where I work now is a software company. We develop the, the software product. And I do see though us moving more into learning design, instructional design. And so because you've again, got the bodies, because move, you've got the people there. Well, looking we're going to, we'll need to expand in that realm yeah. because really what we were doing is helping bring societies from print to digital. That's step one. We've got a long way to go after that. So there's still a lot of folks that are in step one, um, but we're now looking to move beyond that. And so I think as our company grows, we're still technically, I'd say we're still startup, um, but as the company grows, moving more into robust digital first instructional design mm -hmm. is a place that we're going to move. It's not just putting it online and pulling learners through it and making it engaging. 
it's really figuring out how do people learn using the data to tailor a course to you slightly differently than they tailor it to me because we have different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of companies are better suited to that to uh, to 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 bringing in that that uh, the, the, a broader variety of of expertises and of of competencies, everything from instructional design to content to software to uh, to to the marketing. Are are you seeing that the average startup is doing is is growing in those areas, or is it that other startups are coming along and kind of picking off niches and and going and 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 flying in certain areas? Um, I, because I asked because, you know, it sounds like your experience is that you've had a little of both. And, um, I'm, I, I have to think that there are probably, there probably are, are companies that are doing both, right? There are companies that are, that are focusing on, um, that, that are focusing on their software and service. And there's like, we're doing this. Uh, and then there are others that are super, that are, you know, that are attracting investment off, off the charts and are kind of looking to grow in, in a variety of areas. But Based on what you've seen, both organizationally and just in terms of the, what, the what's actually happening in the market, what is there is there one more than the other? I'd say there's a broader range of technology companies. There's probably more technology companies because that's where people started. We got to go online. That means mm. software. That means technology. And so now there are more companies that offer some kind of options to just get online. But again, that's just where we start. And so I'd say that going forward mm -hmm. and this, all of us being at home through coronavirus is going to mo make more people realize that we can't just put it online. We've got to be really thoughtful about how people learn and make our content more engaging. And so I would say we see a lot more focus moving forward in that area. So you talk a lot about, well, so you, I know you've worked a lot with an organizational design and with kind of, uh, you know, strategic planning. So, so what is the kind of, uh, what is the path to do that? What is the path to get, whether it's, you know, whatever uh, software company or any other, uh, anybody else working in a tech, what is the what is what are some of the kind of hallmarks of or, or best practices that, uh, that that companies can follow to 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 make those changes? Um, I hire some really great instructional designers with experience in this. Mm. Um, I know enough to be dangerous and to talk about that, and know that they're really important. And I'm would love to add one to our team now. Um, but they really bring a wealth of experience in how people learn, and it's not necessarily technology. There are uh, tools, there are different things you can add to an online class to make it engaging. Um, but it's, and it's not subject matter expertise. And a lot of people get those things confused. Like, oh, we're putting a really complicated, you know, financial analysis class online or math class. We need somebody that knows math. That might be helpful if they've worked with um, finance or math classes before, but that's not necessary. It's really knowing more about how people learn. And so a background in education, which is very different if you're trying to engage second graders online um, versus a college student versus an adult learner who's doing this in addition to a full-time job and raising kids and working from home. Um, so it really to having an, an experience in education at that specific age or grade level um, and how to do that online is a very specific skill. And 
I would say it's that they're worth their weight in gold when you find a good instructional designer that really can work with a subject matter expert, doesn't need to know the subject, but can help them reimagine how to teach that and how to deliver that content to really get people to learn. Mm -hmm. So now that you're so so you're you've worked in mostly in higher ed or a lot of higher ed, but also K twelve. What, what can you make some draw some uh, uh, differences for us between K twelve and higher ed? What you've seen out there in terms of what they're what's um, you know what they're looking for and what's what's being offered. I would say I, I really haven't worked directly with um, K through twelve, but um, I have nephews and know what they're doing, and I have friends yeah. that are teachers, so. Um, they are probably where higher ed was, I don't know, 10 years ago, perhaps where the online was a companion to the in-person class. Now we have a lot of, um, university and college programs that are delivered exclusively online. And so I, I think we're a little bit farther down the line in terms of thinking around that versus unless you were homeschooling your kids, which definitely has been happening for a while, but most folks sent their kids to school and any kind of online component was a nice to have frosting on the cake addition to that. Hmm. And so you've got a whole different attention span issue when you're talking with little kids. I mean, those of us adults, now we know sitting in front of our computers, we have short attention spans too. Um, yes, yes, yes. Aging kids is um, a whole different thing. And so that, uh, I, I, I haven't done it myself, but I actually am scheduled to talk with some of, um, some of our developers who are commenting on Slack that, gosh, my wife is a teacher and she is trying to figure out how to teach first grade online now. And it's making me think about our platform that we designed in a completely different way. So I can't wait to talk with him and sit down with his wife. Now, how is it making you think differently? Because yeah. I do feel that any lesson that we can learn from engaging first graders is going to help with engaging adult learners too. Oh, there's no question because from the mouths of babes, man, they are going to tell right. you the truth. They're not going to hold back. They're going to tell you exactly what they think. It's for sure. Let's sort of shift gears and talk a little bit about the other end of things. And we alluded to it earlier in the conversation, but I want to kind of drill down into it, which is, which is that a lot of people are, are, that people have always preferred online classes if they can have them just out of the convenience factor, right? For people who are, who have, you know, kids who are stay-at-home parents who are whatever, they have jobs that they, they're inflexible and they need an asynchronous class where they can, they can do it when they want to do it and how they want to do it. And I'm sure that, and I, and that's been growing and we know that's been growing, but one of the, one of the, you know, the, re, the for, for certainly elite uh, parents and families in this country and worldwide, the traditional, bachelor's degree, face-to-face, -face, at a university campus is still kind of considered, I, hate, I, I don't usually use the phrase gold standard, but I'll use gold standard, right? That's the, they think of it. But I want to get it, I want to hear from you a little bit about what you know about how employers are looking differently today from maybe even five years ago of uh, a, a course degree and a skill, uh, an area of expertise that somebody's developed online versus in a face-to-face -face class. Like how is that changing and, 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 and for, and you know, maybe be thinking about it in terms of like how, for, for, for people who are like, ah, oh, you know, what, those are, these are all nice ways to gain a little skill in an area, but it's not gonna get me a job and it's not gonna, you know, open up career options to me in a way that a traditional master's degree or a traditional doctorate or a traditional bachelor's degree is going to do. Yeah, there are a couple of points there that I'd want to touch on. One, 
part of sending kids to school for a traditional undergrad experience is that social component. Being away from parents, living on your own for the first time, doing your own thing, figuring out how to study and get your, make your grades and make friends and learn to live independently on your own. And so that is a broader social experiment that we have to figure out how to stay engaged and how to do that and create that sense of independence when people can't afford to go to school or they're not able to go to school. That's a, that's a separate social experiment that I think is going on. Um, the second point I'd make is that at the earlier on, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of folks would be differentiating their online degrees from their campus degrees, or they'd have, um, you know, a separate E classroom and make it a very different part of the yes. school because they weren't sure where it was going to go and they thought maybe it would compromise quality. People aren't doing that as much anymore. Mm -hmm. A degree is a degree. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to say where you got it. You don't need to say if you got it online or on mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. For the most part, in my experience, the, the content is the same. And so whether you're going to class or whether you're taking it online, you are getting the same content, you're passing the same midterms, you're passing the same exams. And so learning is learning, no matter where you do it, and you don't need to differentiate. You got your degree. And to an earlier point, a lot of times you might be more engaged in an sure. online and virtual environment than well, class. Well, so talk a little bit about micro-credentials, micro-degrees. I mean, is that, are, those, are those picking up speed and how are they picking up speed? So the skill testing, micro-credentialing, I think they definitely are picking up speed. And I think where we really see the pendulum start to swift is, uh, um, swing is when employers recognize that. And employers don't need to see that you have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. That's all well and good. But what if that was 20 years ago? Your knowledge of software programming is out of date if you got a computer science degree 20 years ago. I want to know, can you do this now? And so when we see employers not requiring those degrees, but wanting you to prove your skills, that's when things really start to change. And I'll just speak to the company that I work with now. So many of our um, great um, engineers worked uh, or came through coding boot camps. So for some of them, this is a second career. And they said, hey, I want to learn coding. They went to a coding boot camp and were placed out um, after that. And so that's a perfect example of how learning is changing. And if you can do the job, we'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. so how are really employers doing that? How are employers assessing that? How are employers beginning to make the decision, hey, this employee can do what I want. They don't have a bachelor's degree. They didn't go to University of Illinois. They didn't go to Harvard. They went to, you know, they got this, but they have the skill I need. How, how are you seeing employers effectively doing that hiring? In my experience, it's where you have very tangible skills like computer programming. I need you to do this while you're in the office in the next hour and either you accomplish the task or not. And I can see your, I can see your skill in doing that. I think that's so, so when you have any quantifiable skill mm -hmm. and you can develop some kind of test, um, it's much easier to gauge that where it's much harder, obviously, when you get into the soft skills. Can you manage people? Prove it to right. me in the next two hours while you're right. in the office. Um, <laughs> right. There is potentially a way that you could design some kind of experiment like that. And I, I, I don't know specifically, but I, I've heard of Google doing a lot more creative interviewing things like that, which I would 
be interested to look up. But I think we probably move in a, we move more in that direction, especially as four-year degrees get more and more expensive. And who knows what's happening to the economy here? I mean, people are going to want to get back to work as quickly and inexpensively as possible. So yes. can I get a, a micro-credential and then prove my skill and get hired? I want to do that right away. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So well, I, I think you, this I economic yeah. situation might really drive yes. that further yes. right now because a lot of people are out of work and some of those jobs may not come back, but there's probably new ones that will crop up out of this. Online education, for instance, is not going to, in the long run, suffer because of this. We're going to need more people. We're going to need more of those instructional designers. So can you go learn those skills quickly and efficiently and then prove it and then get back in the workforce, I think this might be an opportunity for that. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time because I, this is, I could do this all day. And as you know, we do this often and I could yeah. do this all day, but I, want to, I do want to ask a couple more questions. One of them is you're in Chicago. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about Chicago and its place in the kind of ed tech universe and how, you know, maybe what's, uh, what's distinctly happening here or why, what are the advantages to being in Chicago area? Um, huh. I haven't really thought about that specifically before. Everybody thinks, you know, the Bay Area, San Francisco, that's the place to be for any kind of technology startup and um, probably the predominance of um, companies are there. But we right. certainly do have a big um, startup community here in Chicago. We've got some PE firms that specifically invest in ed tech. Um, and it's a I mean, it's a great place to do business. It's less expensive for people to live. You can get talent here. Um, in uh, You can afford talent that you potentially can't afford to live in San Francisco. And so um, it's just, we tend to be more risk averse here, I think, in our startups. Like if you've worked with the startup community in Chicago, there's, and the investors are a little um, more risk averse. But um, my company started nine years ago and we are growing exponentially and are really solid and have made, uh, you know, really smart moves in terms of growth and in terms of pivoting along the way. And I don't know, perhaps that's a Midwestern sensibility. Uh, <laughs> that we dream sure. big, but make practical, take practical steps to get there. I like it. Um, well, let me ask you, let, let, let me ask, I know, I know, uh, I know you've actually written about this and I know you're a writer in your own right. And I remember one piece you wrote quite a while ago, but I, it stuck with me about how, uh, how kind of social, how people who are social, people who are good at communication, empathy, human interaction, how they can succeed in a world of kind of increasing quants everywhere. Um, and I, 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 I remember, I, I've enjoyed your writing and I'm, I'd like to know a little bit, and I know you're an avid reader, uh, and I'd love to know a little bit about what your current influences are. What, you know, where are you, where, what are you reading and where do you get information these days? That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I'll have to go back and read that because I will say, I probably am looking at it from a, the same but a slightly different perspective. So I joined a, this tech company, never worked for a tech company before, and um, less than 10% of us, like nine total probably, are over 40. So I'm working with a much younger generation, and the technology and the way of communicating is all very different. 
Um, there's, you know, I have 20 different tabs open on 10 different platforms, like sending me information all the time. We don't have phones in the office. Um, I'm used to going to visit clients and talking with them on the phone and we communicate very, with each other in the office and with our clients very differently now, much more through technology. But yet it's been kind of hard for a lot of people to be forced to work from home, which was a little bit discongruent to me and I think is very interesting. So there's a lot of technology used to communicate, but still people hunger, and this is showing us so much, this people hunger for that human connection. Even developers and programmers who are used to sitting behind their screens for most of the day, they get up and play ping pong at yeah. lunch yeah. and all come together and talk at lunch. And so those soft skills I think that again, this pandemic is making us realize that potentially those are important even to quants. And that is actually potentially the thread that weaves the whole picture together. Mm -hmm. So we need all of those people behind their computer screens all the time, but the thread that keeps them all together and that keeps a company together and that keeps us sane is the soft skills. Mm -hmm. I buy and it. I love it. Even if that's playing video games um, virtually, there's still people are talking to each other while they're doing it. So yes. there we are melding those two things so that you're engaging in a digital platform, but yet you're still talking about what is going on and you still need that. So I think this is showing that we, that we need both even more. Yeah, I love it. Well, gosh, Elizabeth, thanks for doing this. I can't tell you how uh, how much I enjoy talking to you about this stuff, and uh, and obviously we're we're going to have to do it again. I usually end with uh, asking my guests to give if people want to get in touch with you, if they have questions, or if they have you know if they want to reach out for for maybe more information. What's the what's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. Are you going to ask me to know my Twitter handle? I should know that. <laughs> I don't. I assume Google will pull it up. What should they search for? <laughs> um, I'm on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Rogers on LinkedIn, which is linked to my Twitter profile. And I great. should know that next time. Great, 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 great. Well, this is great. I can't thank you enough. My and, pleasure. Uh, we, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll do it again soon. And, you know, in the meantime, stay safe. Excellent. You too. Take care. Take care.